I'm Roxanne Cody, and welcome to Just the Right Book, a podcast for enthusiastic and engaged readers. It'll help you discover new books in all genres, give you unique insights into your favorite authors, and keep you up to date with what's going on in the literary world. I recently had the opportunity to chat with Nicole Lammy. I had really been looking forward to talking to her. She's a writer and book critic, and now she's a literary matchmaker. So the Matchbook column runs online on Tuesdays, and every other Sunday it's in the Sunday New York Times book review, and she connects readers with book suggestions based on their questions. It's a brilliant version of if you like that, you'll love this. And Nicole does a ton of research, understanding their tastes, their literary needs, and just does a great job. So it was fun to get to talk to her. And stay tuned after my conversation with Nicole to hear about our recent live event at RJ Julia's with author Min Jin Lee. Her book, Pachinko, was one of the most talked about books of 2017. This was a, an event hosted by RJ Julia's but was moderated by the hosts of the Book Cougars podcast. But first, my discussion with Nicole. We are joined today by Nicole Lammy, who is a writer and a book critic, and she's now a literary matchmaker. She started this fantastic new column called The Matchbook, and that's literally what she does. She announced this in the fall of uh, 2017. So, Nicole, welcome to the show. Thank you, Roxanne. And who came up with this idea? You know, I had this idea uh, for ye- you know for years because it was something that I did for everybody. I'm sure you know yeah. having a bookstore that people come to you because they would like recommendations. And it's something that I've been doing for colleagues, especially at different literary magazines and newspapers where I worked. And also, because I'm a book person, I often gave books as presents. Right. So that's the, that's really what this column is supposed to be. It's like if you were giving a present to someone you knew well, uh, like to a relative or a friend, not necessarily a book that you loved, although I do include books I love, but this is a way to try to get at what someone really wants about who they are and then suggest books based on what you think they're going to like from their perspective. You know, it's funny because about eight or nine years ago, we started sort of a subset to our bookstore, RJ Joya, called JustTheRightBook.com. And basically, it's a personalized book subscription. So people who want to give gifts of a book, but they don't know what to give them, the giftee fills out this form, and then every month we send them something, and we love the letters we get. I'm sure you get the same thing. It's like, oh, my God, this was so perfect. I would have never that's picked great. that out. Yeah, no, that's exactly it. It's that that I live for the follow-up letters. That's the most fun, is that I want people to. I just heard from someone whose letter I answered, I don't know, six months ago, and who wanted to update me on what she had liked and what she hadn't liked. Wow. Really, that's the part that I like the best is this connection that I make with the readers, yeah. which, you know, sometimes you can only have a connection. If someone asks you quickly for a book suggestion, you only connect with them for a few minutes. But because I spend a week thinking about one person, yeah, I end up thinking that I'm much closer to them than I really am. <laughs> <laughs> so that uh, early on, I had, there was a really nice woman who asked me for some suggestions, I think, uh, for her granddaughter. And we had gone back and forth a lot. It was quite early last spring. It was before it had officially launched. And we had gone back and forth in letters for a few weeks. And when I didn't hear from her for a few days, I felt a little worried. hurt. Yeah. And then she said Not that worried, when hurt. I heard back from her, she said, oh, I'm sorry, I had been on vacation. I was on vacation in Hawaii. And I thought... I didn't. I didn't know you were going on vacation. You didn't tell me. I, I had no idea. So I, of course, have built up this relationship in my head that doesn't really exist. But. Oh my god, I love that, Nicole. So, how many requests have you gotten since you launched this? Oh, so many requests. I mean, I and I get on average three to five a day. Yeah. But before it even once the announcement went out last spring, in the course of about a month. I think I got about 1,500. So how do you decide which one you want to answer? You know, I, ha- 
have a running list of difficult books, difficult requests for me to answer, easy requests for me to answer, um, some that are in between. And I just try to do a mix of ages and genres. And, you know, I, you know, I try to answer a lot of um, questions from men because fewer men write in than women. So uh, I often try to move them into the front of the line because there aren't that there aren't that many that write in. But I just try to do a mix of different books. But I love a story as a reader. I love yeah. something that has a story. It has a really good hook. And I think that people have begun to understand that I like that. In the beginning, people would just send in something that sounded gruff. I'm sure they didn't mean it. They would just send a title. They would just say something like, I love that. What about what's next? Yeah, what's next? What, well, here it is. Here it is. They would just say, like, all the light we cannot see. And then I was supposed to answer from that. Like, I love the column that you did where the person asked that they wanted to do good in the world. What yeah. should they read? I thought that was, I mean, I've loved every column and I've learned something from every column. And w- one of the things that occurs to me as a bookseller, where I know the sort of drumbeat of trying to get everything read, do you, are you covering, are you mentioning books that you've already read? Do you do the research and then pick out the books that way? And then do you read the books? Or if it's an old book, do you reread the book? Yeah, it's a mi- It's definitely a mix. But I have to start almost always. It's, I mean, there have been a few exceptions where I'm starting from zero, which is pretty scary. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I have when I'm starting from zero, I have to take a much longer time to do a column. So I right now have the five sort of active columns that I'm actively reading for because they're longer. Someone asked for something that's like five. This is a, I'm, I feel like I'm giving this away, but this is a long, uh, this is what it's going to take me a while. Someone is asking for five books they can read in a row by Hmm. any given author. So I'm spending a lot of time on that column. It's already about six weeks and it's going to take me longer to get through them or someone asking for monster long novels, door stoppers, and it's going to take me a long time to do it too. But mostly I read a letter and I think of, if I can think of five books off the top of my head that I've read or have heard of so I can go to them, Mm -hmm. that's helpful. What ends up happening is I'm sure of five to 10 books in the beginning that are good matches. And then as I begin to read them or reread them, I realize many of them are not going to work. Mm. That happens a lot. So when do you read, Nicole? I mean, that's what I do for a job. So I spend many, many hours a week uh, reading during the day. And then it, the most of the time I spend is not writing, but it is reading. It's many, many hours. So, Nicole, during- when you were a kid and loved to read, yes, would you have ever imagined that this most perfect job on the planet for a reader would happen to you? Never. No. I mean, now I, I think now my parents understood what was going on back then when they <laughs> told me to go outside, uh, that I was preparing for something, but I didn't know exactly what I was preparing for then. It didn't seem like I was preparing for anything. It just seemed like I was really indoorsy. I always joke that I grew up in a house where my father said, why would you go outside where you could get hurt when you could be inside reading? That's so funny. <laughs> um, so, Nicole, what was your path to this job? Uh, you know, I've worked just only at literary magazines and newspapers in most of my life. I had one brief section in the early aughts where I wrote for television for two years, but it was really helpful because I wrote for this History Channel series, Mm -hmm. and it meant that I read history deeply for two years. So I go back to those books a lot, too, that I had read. And do you fall into the category of you never not finish a book or you just move on? No, I I finish them. It's very, very rare that I wouldn't finish a book. I know what I'm getting myself into when I start. Mm. I think that's what it is. It's not as though I don't necessarily proceed blindly. Yeah. I, you know, I take recommend. The only time I proceed blindly, I would say, is when people, and this is not blindly, I love others. I love recommendations from other people. Yeah. Uh, I love when people tell me what they think I should read next. And then I sort of dive in, not knowing what I'm getting. I just a book that I haven't started yet that a writer friend recommended that I read called The Moonflower Vine. Hmm, I don't know it. This book by Jetta Carlton. No. I was at a mm-hmm. talk given by Frederick Wiseman yesterday and he's a filmmaker, documentary filmmaker, 
who's made something like 45 movies, and someone in the audience asked him his favorite book. I was very excited and was not expecting this answer, which was he said that his favorite book is this book called The Confidence Man. Yeah. Um, which I had never read. It's I've his, not uh, read it, but I know of it. And I'm, I'm, excited to, I'm excited to start that, too. You know, sometimes I periodically feel like it's an onslaught where, you know, I'm reading <laughs> books for the podcast, I'm reading books for a column, I'm reading books for the bookstore, and then, of course, I'm reading books because I want to read them, and I find I do exactly what you do. You know, I'll... I'll hear an interview of someone that I have great admiration for and they recommend a book or you, I read your column or I read the book review or I read any one of the, you know, two dozen magazines I read uh, on a regular basis. And I and I keep adding books to the list and I'm thinking, when do you think you're going to get to these books? I know. You know, it's, it's just, I mean, in one way I find it wildly exciting because I'll never run out of something I'm just, just so excited to read. I think it's I think it's thrilling and I think it's thrilling to mix it up in that way that you're open to any suggestions that come your way. We I feel that I have three children and they all are reading at different levels obviously mm-hmm. and that is another way for me to I think that I'm suggesting books to my kids and then they bring home books from the library or books that they've been passed around among their friends mm-hmm. and I get to read those books too. So that you know keeping an open mind and your curiosity at the ready for. And how old are your kids? 11, 7 and nearly 5. Yeah, so that's really fun ages. We're reading some great stuff right now. My Five-year-old has a favorite picture book called Thank You, Octopus. I don't. Do you know this book? I don't. By Darren Farrell. Unbelievably, it's the most raucous bedtime book you've ever read. It's not very, if you want your child to go to sleep, it's maybe not the best bedtime book, but it's very, very deeply silly. Uh, and we read that most nights along with another picture book. And then there's a read-aloud chapter book that we're reading this book called Masterpiece. Mm-hmm. By Elise Broach. Do you know that book? I do. It's really lovely uh, also because she has, Elise Broach has this, she has broken down the characters, Marvin and James, a boy and a beetle, and they are characters in these smaller picture books for kids who are just beginning chapter books. Mm, I know, uh, right. And so she uses those characters, and my kids have all read those, which is really great, but I'm reading this chapter book allowed to her because they're interested in, in art too. It's about art. You know, it was funny. I was just at the uh, Dia Beacon Museum and there was a kid's book. And Dia Beacon or? Dia Beacon. Dia Beacon, yeah. And um, there was a kid's book that I had forgotten about, which was, a, you know, it's a black and white book, not not the book with without words, but about encouraging kids to think about how they look at art. Well, that's great. And, and I, I bought it because I thought, I forgot about this book. And I, I want to make I sure it's in the, I could have taken a picture of it and then, you know, went back to the store and spoken to our kids buyer and said, what about this book? But I, I, I had the need to have it. I'm so glad you did. So <laughs> I mean, it's ridiculous. <laughs> no, it's great. So, Nicole, what's the craziest request you've gotten? Well, the craziest request is one that I included in a column, but I didn't answer. Uh, it was from a group of topless readers in Manhattan. Mm. They have a topless reading group, and they wanted books that would... Co-ed? Um, Co-ed? I, it's, yes, but it's mostly women. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, the, it's for real. I was sure it wasn't real. Um, I sent it to my editor at the time. And... Uh, I didn't answer, but it was the it was the best request for sure. I'm fascinated. I I wonder what the reasoning for that is. I mean, they're not new. They're not naturalists. They're just well, topless. They're, they're they're half naturalists. I think. <laughs> they just wanted to read something, whatever I chose to think that would suit their mission. It was open. I think it was a it was a it was a bid for publicity. But I like I appreciated it. Yeah, why not? <laughs> and then what was the most challenge? Now, I know you've got five you're working on. Which of your columns that are out there has a particular affection for you? I think the one where someone said that she was at sea and she was trying to woo a new girlfriend. Hmm. Uh, she had met someone and she was living in Nashville. She said she was an atheist who worked at a church. She had just moved to the Deep South, and she's Latina, and she uh, she likes science fiction. 
and she was trying to woo a new girlfriend, and did I have suggestions for her? That's my that's my most favorite letter ever. So was she going to use what she read to give her ideas of how to woo her, or was she going to... No, she was going to give the books as Give the books. Gotcha. Yeah, I thought that was really great. So I think I shared this with a friend of mine who was in town. I hadn't seen him for a long time. And he was so excited because he said, this is just like mixtapes. Yeah. Or this is how we used to woo, by books and with mixtapes. Mm. So it's good to know that other people were. I think she was younger than we are. So. Have you have you heard from her? I haven't heard from her. That's a good question. I, I should try to reach back out to her. I'm just curious. She had originally written me, um, this happens a lot too, which is one of the fascinating things. People write me sometimes many times in a row with different kinds of requests. So she had written me four or five letters maybe. Oh, jeez. And so I kind of collapsed all of her Request into one. That happens a lot. People just send me something and I have to tease a letter out of them, which is really fun. And then sometimes people just write in with a line or two that I can answer quickly and I don't, I just answer it over email. So, Nicole, are you reading anything that you're not reading for the column? Sometimes, like those books, I, I, you know, I think I'll always think that. I'll include those books in the column. So very, very new books I'm just reading for myself because I figure eventually I'll fit them in. But, you know, new books are coming out, and I'll, and I'll read them just, just for myself. Um, and also any books that I read to my kids are just motivated by, yeah. you know, reading to them at night. I miss also. that. My son's 27 now. But he still loves to read. Um, he went through a period where he wasn't reading as much, but it just cracks me up because all the books that I was pregnant when I opened the bookstore. So mm-hmm. all the authors that have been to the store, like thousands of them, um, are all signed to my son, Edward. How wonderful. And some are in storage and some are in the, you know, gazillion bookcases I have in the house. And I just love that he'll say, you know, mom, did you ever hear of this book or that book? Um, and I'll say, yeah, in fact, the author came to the store and I have a copy signed to you. For you. <laughs> that's the perfect, uh, now that's the perfect gift present. We had a fun moment the other day. He had gone to see The Post, the movie about mm-hmm. the Washington Post and the Pentagon Papers. And he said, Mom, you know, I remembered that you always said you loved that autobiography of Catherine Graham. Do you have it? And I said, well, it's one of my favorites, so it must be in the house. So I find it and I give it to him and he opens it up and he said, Dear Edward... I knew I would. I know I would like you because we share the same birthday. Best, oh. Catherine. And I thought, that's why I've had a bookstore for 28 years. <laughs> pretty great. That's a terrific story. It was pretty funny. Uh, Nicole, the question I ask all our guests is, what is the book that changed your life? What is the book that changed my life? That's a great question. Um, Maybe. I can't guess. I have to have one? Then you can have two. All right. Thank you. Um, (laughs) I'm going to say either Charlotte's Web or Portrait of a Lady. Those are my two. That's so funny. (laughs) Why is it funny? Aren't they common? No, no. But the other woman I interviewed today, Ellen Gammerman from the Wall Street Journal, she mentioned Charlotte's Web. Oh, that's so funny. And I think you're the only two that have ever mentioned it. So... We have been joined by Nicole Lamy, who has the most perfect book column called The Matchbook that's in the New York Times Sunday Book Review. And she gets, you know, crazy requests, logical requests. You will love something in one of these columns that you feel like you need to read. It is the ideal job. I'm a little bit jealous, Nicole. Uh, well, thank you. I think I treasure the job. So I can I can imagine. Well, you keep doing it. Uh, and thank you so much for taking the time to join us on Just the Right Book. I hope we'll be able to get you back for a conversation. I'm going to make a road trip to the bookstore. Excellent. You let me know you're coming. <laughs> okay, I will. Now let's get to our live event with Min Jin Lee talking about Pachinko, moderated by the ladies of the Book Cougars podcast. Pachinko is a National Book Award finalist, a New York Times Book Review Top 10 of the Year, and Roxanne Gay's favorite book of 2017. (laughs) (laughs) Juno Diaz, author of The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wayo, said... In 1930s Korea, an earnest young woman, abandoned by the lover who has gotten her pregnant, enters into a marriage of convenience that will take her to a new life in Japan. Thus begins Lee's luminous new novel, Pachinko, 
a powerful meditation on what immigrants sacrificed to achieve a home in the world. Pachinko confirms Lee's place among our finest novelists. Please join me in welcoming Min Jin Lee. Hi, everybody. Now you're probably wondering, well, who are these two people sitting next to me? <laughs> That's not who we came to see. So um, I'm Emily Fine, and we are the Book Cougars, two middle-aged women on the hunt for a good read. It's Our, a podcast. Yeah. Um, we've been going for a little bit more than a year now, and we have an episode every other week. Um, and it's really special for us to be here with Min Jin Lee today because the first time anybody ever recognized us publicly, just from hearing our voices, was at an event at the Savoy last March That's right. up in Rhode Island. So it's great to be here with you today. I also want to thank all of you guys for coming out tonight. Do you know that it's Thursday? <laughs> in January? In January? You know, my uh, publisher told me that you know, I was going to have this event here, and I said, are you sure anyone will come? And also, I didn't know anybody, so then I called my sister, and uh, I said, do you know anybody in Connecticut? Because empty chairs are not my friend. So then, and then I thought, oh, I'll, I'll get these popular women to come with me, and that'll help a lot. So then uh, my sister's husband's older brother and his wife are here. <laughs> so... <laughs> Sean and Georgia are here, and I figured, like, if you guys didn't come, we'll just go to Pepe's. Because, <laughs> you know, in Connecticut, you always have that pizza backup. Yeah. I want to thank Gina and Patty for organizing this event. I want to thank uh, Roxanne Cody for having this community space, because independent bookstores are the civilizing aspect of our lives. And we are so grateful for this store. I also want to thank Emily and Chris for hanging out with me today because I don't know if you know this, but I suffer from an incredible stage fright. So it's always nicer to have friends who are with you. So, and thank you for coming out tonight. I'm going to read for three minutes, three minutes, because I want you to like me <laughs> primarily. <laughs> um, I can't stand it when authors go on and on. So I'm going to read for three minutes a very, very early part of the book, and I'm going to read... Um, we're going to pretend that we're not in Madison, Connecticut, this beautiful town. Pretend that we're in Busan, which is in the southern tip of South Korea right now, what used to be the peninsula of Korea. It's 1933, so this is before North and South were even divided. We're at a ferry terminal, and my main character is saying goodbye to her mother, Yangjin. So we have only two people, really, that you have to be concerned with. It's Yangjin and her daughter, Sanja. It's 1933. We're in Busan at a ferry terminal, so imagine. Mm -hmm. I saw the gold watch in your things, Youngjin said. Was it from that man? Yes. What kind of man can afford a thing like that? And Sanja didn't reply. Where is the man who gave you that watch? He lives in Osaka. But that's where you're going. Are you planning to see him? No. No. You cannot see that man, Sanja. You cannot see him. He abandoned you. He's not good. And Youngjin took her daughter's hand. You cannot see him. That man. And Youngjin pointed to Ishak, who was still talking to the immigration officers. That man saved your life. He saved your child. You're a member of his family now. I have no right to see you again. Do you know what that's like for a mother? Soon you'll be a mother, and I hope that you'll have a son who doesn't have to leave you when he gets married. And Sanja nodded. The watch. What will you do with it? I'll sell it when I get to Osaka. And Youngjin was satisfied with that answer. Sanja, save it for an emergency. If your husband asks where you got it, tell him that I gave it to you. And Youngjin fumbled with a purse tucked beneath her blouse. This belonged to your father and mother. And Youngjin gave her the two gold rings that her mother-in-law had given to her before she died. 
Try not to sell it unless you have to. You should always have something in case you need money. You're a thrifty girl, but raising a child requires money. There will be things that you can't expect, like a doctor's visit. And there will be things like, if it's a boy, you'll need fees for school. And if your husband doesn't give you money for the household, earn something and put aside savings for emergencies. Spend what you need, but just throw even a few coins into a tin and forget that you have them. A woman should always have something put by. And take good care of your husband, or another woman will. And treat your husband's family with reverence. Obey them. And if you make mistakes, they will curse our family. And think of your kind father who always did the best for us. And Yang Jin tried to think of something else to say, anything that she was supposed to tell her, and it was so hard to focus. And Sanja slipped the rings into the fabric bag beneath her blouse, where she kept her watch and the money. Amini, I'm sorry. I know. I know. And Yangjin closed her mouth, and she stroked Sanja's hair. You're all I have. And now I have nothing. Thank you. Beautiful. Thank you for reading. It's really lovely. So when Chris and I saw you uh, in Rhode Island last March... You talked about being very shy. I think you actually used a term I'd never heard anyone use to, to describe shyness, which was hysterically shy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd never heard that. And being someone who's shy, I could relate to it. You know? And then we follow you on social media, and you, know, you don't sleep, I'm pretty sure, and you have crisscrossed the globe this last year. And I am, that is serious. I mean, back and forth and back and forth. And the last time we saw you in the fall, it was the day that the National Book Award announcement came out. And I had said to you, I was hoping, you know, soon you'd be able to get some sleep. Right. And certainly that didn't happen. So but I lost. <laughs> <laughs> I got all dressed up, but I lost. <laughs> Plenty more accolades were to come, though, however. So could you just talk a little bit about, you know, what your expectations were when you wrote Pachinko and then what ended up happening last year? Oh, that's a good question, Emily. And it's kind of funny, but I, the reason why I say I'm hysterically shy, and this can be verified by my family, is that when I was growing up, and I, when I came to America in 1976, I was seven and a half, English is my second language. I didn't speak English. So then I had a, a language issue, but then also I really couldn't talk to people, even like in Korean. Like I just really couldn't talk. I, I was so, I guess um, I had a, a predisposition to be quiet, but then when I came here, I really just didn't even know how to function. And then I, I really didn't start talking until I was almost in high school. But then I was so off that I didn't even know that I was off. So in a way, I think a disability can be kind of protective. And now that I'm a parent, I look back and go, why wasn't I invited to any birthday parties? But like, I get it now. There was something, like I couldn't handle the communication. I couldn't really handle crowds. But the really wonderful upside of all this is that it really made me retreat into books. And I just sort of just kind of got sucked into the vortex of books. And there were a lot of really kind people in my life who were very, very nice to foreigners because I was a foreigner in Queens. And these librarians and teachers and English language specialists were incredibly kind to me. So I somehow made it through. But in terms of the expectations of this book in particular is that I had no idea that I'd be on book tour for a year and a half <laughs> around the world and that I have another six more months to go. And I almost feel like all the publishers are slightly amused by the fact by sending a hysterically shy person out there. <laughs> They're like, oh, yes, the audience, the readers will feel sorry for her. <laughs> That's it. And I'm like, okay, I'll just go. And then I also feel like the subject matter is so important to me. I've spent almost all of my life on the subject. And I feel like in the service of the subject, I think, I have to overcome all of my issues and talk about that. So when I think about it as a service, then it's easier to talk about 
everything. It's easier to, you know, be on social media and be on Instagram. I'm 49 years old. I'm a little too old for this stuff. But <laughs> I think that it's supposed to be, like, I have to try to think of the larger picture. So I, I think about that all the time. But in terms of expectations, I did not think that this book was going to sell at all. You were not something that I expected <laughs> in a million years. Like, when I finished my manuscript, it was really thick, and I had a Kinko's box, and I had to go to Kinko's, and I asked for a free box, because I printed out in my own computer, and I took the box, and I went to my very fancy agent's office, and I was in the elevator, and I told myself, if she doesn't like it, and she can't sell it, then I'm going to try to reach out to some academic presses and perhaps I'll publish it for nothing, but then at least I'll be done. Like, I'll be done and I can go on with my life because it was killing me, this book. I got the idea when I was 19, and I started it in 1996 to 2003, and it was a terrible draft, so I never even sent it out. Like, I was really just depressed about all the professional choices that I had made. And then um, I started again in 2007, And since 2007, that's all I've been working on. So when I was done, I was like, yes, done. I just really just needed to let it go. So, and it's very humbling, and you're and you're just really grateful that someone really spent 10 to 12 hours with your book. You know, I think people, I think a lot of writers, like we don't we don't do it for the money. (laughs) We do it because we love the work. And the fact is that there's so much competing for your attention right now. So many things. So if you're willing to spend 10 to 12 hours with this text, whether you got the book from the library or a bookstore or for whatever, from your friend, I just think it's really quite a thing that the reader gives to the writer. And I feel really quite gratified to be here and just to meet you guys. So thank you so much. I, I love this book. Um, and I guess one of the questions I have ties into the portion you just read mm-hmm. where she's leaving her home. You've been leaving your home a lot. Um, but I was really struck by looking at the book again. You start with the epi- epigraph mm-hmm. of, from Charles Dickens right. on the importance of home. The last word of the book is home. And then in, in between, or I shouldn't say in between, but the first line of the book is history has failed us, but no matter. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about home and history because there is so much history in the book. For those of you who haven't read it, it starts like in 1910 when the uh, Japanese annexed Korea, and it goes to the 1980s, 89 or so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit. I, I know that's probably the whole book right there, but the importance of home in history <laughs> and how much history matters, but then it doesn't. Well, I think that all of us are really obsessed with what home is. It's one of the things that every single person in this room is really interested in. And all of us have, maybe you guys were from Madison, Connecticut, and this is where you've stayed. And there's a really reason why you've stayed here. Or maybe you're from, let's say, Nebraska. And you come to Madison, Connecticut, and you decide you find your own way. Emily's from Ohio. It's interesting to me about the intersection of history and home. Because for some of us, history has determined where our homes will be. Mm-hmm. And the way history and the forces of history have worked, we can't always decide what, where we're supposed to be. And sometimes we land in places where people don't want us. So right now, the UN um, High Commissioner of Refugees has stated there are 65 million refugees around the world that are in the globe that nobody wants, right? And some of us in this room may have descended from refugees who are unwanted at one point. And I think about that all the time and what that means that 65 million people don't have a home. And they may not have left because they want to. They may have left probably because there are other forces, other people who are in charge who made terrible decisions on their behalf. And so that goes back to the first line of the book, history has failed us, but no matter. And one of the things that I wanted to sort of embody is a sense of defiance, that all of us in this room are constantly having to make adjustments because there are decisions that are made for us. That we don't get to participate in. Like, how many people were sitting at the Treaty of Versailles? Right. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think any of us were there. Or, and how many other tables and Congress and rooms where the, the recent tax hall that just passed? Like, how many of us participated in that? So even if we elect certain officials, they may not necessarily get what they want. And what are we supposed to do? And the thing that I really learned from all of my interviews is that people are so adaptive. Like, we're so adaptive. 
So even and all these workarounds with the issues of all the inequities there are in the world, and that gave me a lot of hope. Like I don't get discouraged when things don't work out my way. I realize no, actually, the history of what I've seen and all the interviews that I've done, people are so tough. I mean, it doesn't mean that we don't get discouraged, but we're really tough. And that gave me an enormous sense of fortitude about going on and continuing this book. And I wanted to get that message about how people are so resilient, even if you have institutional reasons to be unhappy. You know, um, I read so that I can learn about things I don't know about and so I can escape, admittedly, from, you know, everyday life. And I have to say, I just want to say thank you publicly because I learned so much reading this book about something that I knew absolutely nothing about. And obviously there's, you know, you have history here and it's meaningful to you in a different way than it's meaningful to me. But um, I really appreciate learning about, you know, the things that I got to learn about through this book. So can you talk about, you just alluded to the research that you did, but can you talk about a little bit of that process and how you came to even write the book? Yeah, well, thank you so much. That's really kind of you. I mean, I'm so glad I asked Emily to join me today. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, I had no idea I'd get all this praise. (laughs) If I keep listening to this, I'm going to become insufferable. (laughs) Um, Well, I did so much research because I was terrified. I was so terrified of being wrong. And I majored in history in college. And so I trained as a historian. I thought I was going to become a historian. So I was really focused on primary documents and interviews. And I really love ethnographies and anthropologists. So I had this sort of academic approach to this book. And that's the reason why my first book was terrible, the one that I wrote between 96 and 2003. It was not good enough to be an academic book, and it was not good enough to be a novel. Okay. So I think one of the things that I think about training to be a writer is that I needed to understand the form that I wanted to write, because my wheelhouse is 19th century Western literature. So I wanted to write 19th century Western literature like all the greats that you could think of. And I was like, yeah, I want to write that kind of book, a social realist novel. But I didn't know how to do that, so I had to learn. <laughs> it took me forever because I started writing seriously at the age of 26. So I'm 49 now, so that's what I've been doing. And I've produced <laughs> two books. <laughs> and I've been working nonstop. It wasn't even like I took a break. That's how pathetic I am. <laughs> And then I wanted to pick a subject which was worthy of my attention. And I think you had asked me earlier why I quit being a lawyer, right? Right. So I used to be an attorney. I was an attorney for like five minutes. (laughs) So I know just enough law to be dangerous. (laughs) I would not ask me to opine on anything. So I quit because I had a very serious liver disease, which I don't have right now. And when I was uh, at Yale as an undergrad, I went to this doctor and he said that I would get liver cancer in my 20s. And he said that I wouldn't be a candidate for a transplant because I'm, I'm fine now. I'm fine now. But I wouldn't be a candidate for a transplant because if you are a carrier of hepatitis B and you're a chronic carrier, you're not, you're not put on the list as a priority candidate. So he just kind of just said it to me like I was 20. He's like, you're going to get it. But he goes, but liver is a nice organ because it kind of grows back. Maybe you'll be okay. So I've always been having, I always had this sort of idea that I would die like really early. And so I was thinking a lot about mortality. And if and when you do think about mortality as a kid, I thought a lot about, well, what should I do with my time? Like, how do I want to spend my time? And I thought if I wrote a book, it has to be something that's important, like all caps. So I think that when I was researching this book, I read every single academic book about the Korean Japanese available in English. And if you look at the back of the book, I credit all the scholars that I think you should be considering if you're interested in the topic because they don't get any attention at all. As a matter of fact, they're so excited about this book that there's a symposium at Johns Hopkins in the spring because they're like, finally, <laughs> somebody cares about the Korean Japanese besides us. So I'm gonna, it's going to be kind of fun. But yeah, it is, I know, it's kind of yeah, cool, yeah. right? Um, so I get to like, join the academics without getting a PhD, which is not easy. <laughs> but going back to this idea, I wanted to create a book that was entertaining, like the 19th century novels that I really loved reading, which people don't read anymore because that narrator, the omniscient narrator, is annoying. <laughs> like If you don't read Tolstoy or... Um, even even like a Balzac, if you don't read him right now, if you don't read George Eliot, a lot of it's because they have this kind of all-knowingness. 
that most people who are modern Americans don't like. And I understand that. I do. And especially kids are like, I'm not going to read that. So I thought, how do I write a 19th century kind of novel and yet have the clarity of American prose? So I wanted to sort of write like Joan Didion and John Updike and Annie Dillard and um, Alice Munro. This kind of like, she's a Canadian, but we'll let her in. (laughs) (laughs) So I wanted to learn how to write, get the right style, the right subject, and then the form. And that just took so long. But I do think that if you don't like a book, you shouldn't read it. <laughs> no, I'm a, I'm a really big believer in that. I have no idea how much longer I'm going to live. I might, be in, like, I might live until I'm 95, but even then, I don't want to read bad books. So if a book is not that interesting after 50 pages, I'm like... I was just going to ask you how many pages you give. <laughs> I, really, I, I am not a DNF'er. The books that I don't finish are the ones that stick with me. The book that I read page to page, I can't remember. But okay. those, the ones I don't finish stick with me. But just recently, I think it is a middle-aged thing. I'm like, you know, there are a lot of books. There are a lot of really good yeah, books. There are a lot of yeah, really good yeah. books. So I just like, just go to the good books. And I think that if, if three people tell me to read a book, I usually read it. So that's my litmus test. If three yeah. random people tell me, you've got to read this, I'm going, okay, fine, I'll read it. Yeah. I, I hope you like my book. <laughs> <laughs> now that I've said it. You will like this book. And I love the way you just said, I don't know if I can repeat it, but the, the type of sentence you were trying to build, yeah. because I really think that's what I loved about this book. Oh. I mean, if you're a skimmer, you won't be able to skim this book because you want to read every single oh, yes. word. Yeah. It is beautifully written. Thank you. Yeah, I'm not a poetic writer. Like, I really admire people who are very lyrical. I'm not a lyrical writer. I just really wanted to write these very cool American sentences. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to take this sort of Western European tradition, but then to have this sort of American sensibility, because I love American prose and stylists. Mm-hmm. Well, and the, it's a historical fiction, um, and you learn so much, I think, as Emily said. Um, but can you talk a little bit more about... Uh, you, you mentioned Willa Cather, you mentioned Nebraska, so we have to talk a little bit about her. Um, but can you talk a little bit about how she influences your writing? Sure. Or, um, you know, I read a, the interview with you from, I think it was The Atlantic, okay. talking about adopting one of her writing techniques or something that helped her get into writing each day. Yeah, the weirdest thing that I do... <laughs> I know. People always go like, so do you have a ritual that you do before writing? And I'm like, I do, but I don't know if you want to hear it. But the person that I blame or credit is Willa Cather, because when I first quit being an attorney, I used to read the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Financial Times before I started working. Wasn't that helpful? <laughs> it really yeah. wasn't that helpful. And I, but I was really well informed. Like, I mean, I just knew everything. Like, I could talk to you about the codex and the, you know, whatever. But then I read somewhere that Willa Cather, a writer who I really love, read a chapter of the Bible every day before she started to write. And I was like, that's just weird enough for me to do it. So I started to do it. And I have now read the Bible as a loop almost six times. Wow. And I read it as literature. I read it for a spiritual practice as well. But really, I never read it like that before. So I read it six days a week. Um, and I spend an enormous amount of time. I think about the stories. I think about how certain parts of the Bible actually speak to each other. I think about minor characters. Like I, I've actually met rabbis. And I was able to say things like, well, you know, the craftsman Bezalel. And he's like, why do you know who Bezalel is? <laughs> and I'm like, because I read Leviticus. <laughs> like, a lot. Like, nobody reads Leviticus. But I read Leviticus at least six times. Wow. And it was really great because you can get it. And I initially, when I started doing it, I just like, I would spend 15 minutes. I was just like, you know, going, oh, that's sort of interesting. But now I, I, I really dive deep. I really think about all these things. I think about it in big themes, little themes, minor characters. And I try to look at the things that I didn't see before. And, of course, all of great Western literature is based on the Bible. So you don't really understand Shakespeare unless you know the Bible very well. So all this literacy about the Bible has helped me incredibly. And my favorite book in the Bible, and the favorite verse is in Genesis, when it's the whole Joseph story. So I recently wrote about the in, in the Atlantic. I was interviewed. So if you're interested, you can Google Minjin League Atlantic, and there's a whole thing about Joseph. It's kind of fun. But, yeah. And it's free. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, Chris got to talk about Cather. For those of you on the podcast, Chris talks about Cather a lot. She's a big Cather fan. 
I talk about food a lot on the podcast sure. because I love food. Yeah, I do too. And, and Who it, loves me? Yes, <laughs> me too. Yeah. And I love cookbooks. And so I have to ask you about kimchi. Sure. Oh, sure. Yeah. Kimchi plays quite a role in this yeah. book. A very important role. Yeah. And it's very important for the women in the book. Yes. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Well, kimchi, for those of you who aren't acquainted, I'm sure all of you are, is a fermented cabbage. It is a national staple of Korea, both north and south. And if you are a certain age, like you would pretty much pride yourself in the kind of kimchi that you make or that your mother made. Nowadays, modern women pretty much buy it in the department stores or any other stores. Just interestingly, in a New England sense, it's a paleo food. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) it's good for you. It's really good for your gut. It has an incredibly strong smell because it's fermented, like anything that's fermented, like sauerkraut or cheese. Um, One of the things that I don't mention in this book, but of course in my research, is that all the first generation of Korean women who went to Japan were incredibly poor. And to sell kimchi is a pretty high-class thing. I know. You would never think so from reading this book. It's probably considered a really low-class thing, but the really, really... The average first-generation Korean woman, what she did was she'd made moonshine. Oh, wow. And she would get repeatedly arrested. Mm-hmm. Because your husband, if he was trying to work, let's say as a day laborer, there were ordinances in Japan that would not allow the hiring of the man consistently. So even if you wanted to work five or six days a week, the local government wouldn't allow them to have all those days. So he couldn't make a lot of money. So like if you could only work, let's say, three days a week, you can't feed your family. So then the women would have to try to figure out, well, how do I feed my family? This is before birth control, right? So you're going to have a whole bunch of kids. They all want to eat at least a couple of times a day. So what do you do? So the cheapest thing to do was to take a little tiny bit of rice and ferment it and make alcohol. So you'd have this sort of bathtub gin concept, but then it was illegal, so they would get arrested. And when you got arrested, you had to pay fines, and you had to swear you'd never do it again. Until tomorrow. Right, until tomorrow, <laughs> when the kids have to eat again. Right. Yeah. And then they would also raise pigs. Hmm. So in a house that was probably like smaller than this area here, let's say you had five people or six people live, you'd also be um, raising your pigs in that same room. Wow. So... The Japanese who made the Koreans live in a certain area, this kind of ghetto, the children often smelled terrible. Everybody smelled terrible because you're living with animals. And then you're also making bathtub gin. So the fact that Sanja makes kimchi, that's really, really lucky. Because she didn't have that many children compared to other people. And then the children would often um, be picked on at school, so they weren't doing very well. So you'd have a lot of truancy. And the boys often collected garbage to feed the pigs. So they would either pick scrap metal or garbage, and they would often get in trouble. And then the mothers were always, it would be so difficult because the husbands couldn't work. They were taking care of pigs and children. The kids weren't in school very well, and you had no money, and you had to deal with the police. So in the sense, like, this is almost a middle-class family. Mm-hmm. Well, because they make a business out of their right. kimchi. Right, You know, so, right. I was so hungry when I ate this, when I read this book, when I ate the book. <laughs> I was so hungry. The whole time I was reading it, it was just like page after page. Noodles and black bean sauce. Are there a lot of good Korean restaurants here? I don't know. Korean I, restaurants, I not that I'm aware of. Okay. Yeah. So I had this sort of scheme where I'm going to write the Diaspora Trilogy of Koreans. So the first book, Free Food for Millionaires, that I wrote, which came out in 2007, um, was just re- recently re-released as a 10th anniversary edition. It is about Koreans in America. And it's all about the Koreans in America. And this book is about the Koreans in Japan. My third book, called American Hagwon, and for those of you who are not um, familiar with the Hagwon concept, H-A-G-W-O-N, it is a tutoring center. And Koreans have all these tutoring centers for their kids. And kids in South Korea go to school, and after school, they go to a hagwon usually for seven to eight hours a day, six days a week. So I am writing about the role of education and the primacy of education for Koreans around the world. Because wherever Koreans are, there are hagwons. So if you go to Sydney you'll see a hagwon. If you go to Boston, if you, I, I know in Connecticut there are hagwons. I've seen them. So I'm writing about parents, tutors, and students. And it's not just a Korean group because many non-Koreans now are attending hagwons. 
So something's happening with this level of middle class and upper middle class anxiety about college admissions where we're all feeling this crunch about performance. And I am trying to ask the question, how do you live a wise life? Like, what is a relationship of wisdom in education? Mm. So that's the next book. That's a big question. I think with Noah, somebody says to him in this book, you know, there's a difference between studying and learning. Mm. And that when you're learning, it's a joy. Yeah, it's not a burden. And studying is such an accomplishment. Get to a certain point, and then you're done. Well, if you think about this, like, we're all lifelong learners, right? Like, how many people on an average Thursday night decide, I'm going to go to a bookstore? You know, to listen to a boring writer. I mean, (laughs) it's because we're lifelong learners. And I think if you have a joy about learning, then you're always trying to seek more information because we need it like we need food and water. Like, if you have an unusual name, most likely online today, I will say, what does that mean? And that's part of my nourishment. So I always tell my publishers, I'm willing to take, you know, a 12-hour round-trip flight for a one-hour event if I learn something. So I expect you guys to share your lives with me today. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, man. Enjoy talking with you. Thank you. Thank you. Book Cougars. This is Christina Torres, the producer of Just the Right Book. And I want to tell you about our new sister podcast, The Royal Wedding Podcast with Rob Shooter. It's a show all about the royal wedding, bringing you news, updates, and interviews every week leading up to the noble nuptials. This week's guest is Buddy the Cake Boss Velastro. So go to theroyalweddingpodcast.com to subscribe. Thanks again to today's guest. Please check out Nicole's column, Matchbook. It's online on Tuesdays at NewYorkTimes.com and every other Sunday in the New York Times Sunday Book Review. Also make sure to pick up a copy of Pachinko, which is out now. And check out the Book Cougars podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcast. For a complete list of all the books we talked about today, just go to BookPodcast.com. Just the Right Book podcast is produced by Collisions, the podcast division of CRN International. Our original music was created by Mark Berman. Many thanks to our producer, Christina Torres, and our sound engineer, Pat Keogh. Thank you all so much for listening. 